Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you here this morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are finishing up today a series we've been working on for the last six weeks. This is our seventh Sunday in our series on the resurrection of Jesus. And each week we've been asking the question why the resurrection of Jesus matters, not just on Easter Sunday. I, th- I think we've pretty well got that covered. But, uh, and not just every Sunday, but, but, but every day. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? And we've been guided by one chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, which we finished up last week with verse 58. And now we're turning to Acts chapter 2. So we're not leaving the series. We are leaving 1 Corinthians. And there's a reason for that, because uh, the, the events that occurred at Pentecost, which we'll talk about here in a second, which are recorded in Acts chapter 2, are really the culmination of a series of events that begin with the resurrection of Jesus. So one person has described the time, uh, usually marked as 50 days in the church calendar, between Easter Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. By the way, welcome to Pentecost Sunday. That's what's happening right now. Uh, As the 50-day hallelujah for the church. 50 days of hallelujah. And in many ways, what we've been doing in this series is just asking the question, why do, we, why do we have all these reasons to say praise the Lord, hallelujah, because of the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, we get that on Easter Sunday, but I mean, that's a lot of hallelujahs. That's 50 days. That's a lot of time to be praising the Lord. Would we run out of things to praise the Lord for when it comes to the resurrection? And we've been saying no. There are all kinds of ways in which the resurrection completely transforms our lives. And we're saying the same thing today from a different text, from a different angle, because one of the consequences of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is that he now, along with the Father, pours out the Holy Spirit on the church and gives us a whole other set of reasons to say hallelujah. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, Before we jump into that, let me just mention, starting next week, we'll begin a new series that we'll have for the summer on the book of Proverbs. So uh, Proverbs has 31 chapters, so you can read the, the, the Proverbs, what, now, you're a little behind, but three times this summer. Read it every day, and you can get through it three times. We're not going to look at every single proverb. We'll look at a fraction of them, but we'll be looking at them by topic. And the book of Proverbs teed up starting next Sunday. It should be a great summer series. Now, there's a reason that Pentecost Sunday fits into this scheme, this, this, this larger story of what Jesus came to do. And, uh, you know, some of that is theological. We'll, we'll get to that. I think some of that is personal and experiential as well. Because I think it's possible for us to be totally on board with everything that the resurrection communicates to us, especially about the future and the way in which the resurrection of Jesus gives us real hope for the future. I think we said it a few times along the way that the resurrection means that for You, as a Christian, your better days are always ahead of you. Your best days are always ahead of you. And we can be completely on board with that. And at the same time, feel very much alone in life. Very much left like we are on our own when it comes to the the daily lives that we lead. We can even be in a room like this and sing joyfully as we have been about the resurrection of Jesus and feel very much like the resurrection was Jesus' exit strategy, and he's just kind of left us to fend for ourselves in difficult marriages, in difficult work situations, in difficult 
school situations or simply in that, that uh, undefinable sense of loneliness that all of us struggle with at, at, at some level at some point in our lives. And this was true before COVID, by the way. I, I think we sometimes struggle to remember what life was like before COVID when we all experienced isolation and loneliness, but there was a real epidemic. I mean, there were social scientists calling loneliness an epidemic in the West and in the United States. I remember reading an article about one college campus, University of Southern California, that was trying to deal with the issue of loneliness with their students. And uh, the article was interviewing, as, as part of the article, the Dean of Religious Activities at USC. And in this article, he says that um, he gets lots of questions from students and has, he's been there for many years. But in the last few years, he's, he's received one question that he actually never really heard before, that he gets, if not every day, every week. And the question he gets from students is, how do I make friends? And he recognizes at, at the root of this is a, is a loneliness, a pervasive loneliness among many of the students who show up on campus year after year. So the way that USC has dealt with that is they've developed this whole, this whole program of trying to meet uh, the needs of their students and their feeling, feelings of being disconnected. And so they have like, they offer like yoga classes and like drum circles and primal scream uh, classes and, and, and pottery classes. And they, have, they hired a director of belonging whose job it is to make sure that students feel like they belong. They even have a dog that walks around campus. Like I actually, that part I'd be totally on board with. And, uh, and that all may sound like, okay, that's a little too much, that's a little overprotective, that's a little silly, but the fact of the matter is, uh, if, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us are dealing with the fear of loneliness in one way or another. Like, we're coping with that in some way. It may not be with your local drum circle or uh, primal scream class, but but you're coping with that fear because all of us have that fear of, of being left alone. So it may be that, uh, that, that you're drinking too much or working too hard or looking at pornography or seeking shallow relationships uh, or desperately just trying to self-medicate to the point that you don't have to live with this constant fear of, of, of being alone. And what's interesting about this passage, what's interesting about the context of Pentecost is that it's meeting the disciples at a particular time in their lives, which I think it would be safe to say includes the fear of being left alone. So let's just kind of walk through the sequence of events, what's happened with them. They've lived with Jesus for three years. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he rises from the grave. For 40 days, off and on, he interacts with his disciples as the risen Christ, and we have records of the, some of those meetings in the Gospels. And then in Acts chapter 1, he comes to them one last time, and he says, I'm leaving you now, and he ascends, he's, he's, he's translated into heaven, and the disciples go back to Jerusalem. And there's a time there, there's about a week to 10 days, we, we believe, in which, in many ways, they're probably wondering, like, okay, now what? I mean, are we just supposed to figure this out? Are we just on our own? Are we all by ourselves? 
And then we come to Acts chapter 2. This is a, we call it Pentecost, just to help you understand what that is. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival. People would have come from all over the Roman world to celebrate in Jerusalem. That's, that's the context, the immediate context of this passage. And it's at that festival that Jesus makes good on a promise. The promise that he would not leave his disciples alone. So we're going to read this passage. I'm actually going to read to verse 13. I think your bulletins have verse 18. That turned out to be a little ambitious for today. Um, so, but don't let that stop you from reading the rest of the chapter later today. But um, this is uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we might understand. And Lord, that uh, by your spirit, you might help us walk in light of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if, uh, if the events that are recorded here were, were, were shocking to the disciples, we can understand that. Uh, I'm not sure that anyone could have anticipated this sort of event, this sort of experience, but they shouldn't have been surprised, really, because Jesus had said multiple times that this was going to happen, that the Holy Spirit was going to show up. After he left, he said, the Holy Spirit will show up. And one of the places that he anticipates this is in the Gospel of John chapter 14 and the, and the verses following. These are, these are words that Jesus was speaking to his disciples probably, uh, well, and it was a day before he was crucified. He's preparing them for what's about to happen. But in this moment, he's looking past the crucifixion, past the resurrection, past the ascension, and he says this. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This helps us understand what's going on here amidst all the noise and all of the 
the ruckus that's going on uh, at Pentecost, fundamentally what's happening is that Jesus is making good on his promise not to leave his disciples alone. He says, I will send you another helper. Okay, not, not a not an invisible, mysterious power, not sort of a cosmic force, another helper, the Spirit. God the Spirit will come to you, and in coming to you, it will be the very power of God, my very presence, which will come to you to be with you and to be in you, never to leave you, Jesus says, I will come to you. So if the resurrection gives us confidence, as we've been saying, that Jesus really is alive, Pentecost gives us confidence that this same Jesus is really with us today. He's really with us wherever we go, whatever we do. That Jesus makes good on his promise that he makes elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you forever. Now, the question then is, okay, why does that matter? What's the big deal? Why does it matter that we walk with, live with, for the rest of our lives, the very presence of God with us and within us. What difference does that make? Well, I want to talk about it in two different ways today. The way in which um, the power, or the, the way in which the presence of God with us brings the power of God to us and also the purpose of God to us. The power of God, the purpose of God. First of all, We see this power right away. It's difficult to miss if you're paying attention in this passage. Everybody's gathered together. Verse 2, suddenly there's a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the entire house. In fact, we're told it gets the attention of the entire neighborhood. That's how how loud it is. That's how how much it, 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 um, uh, that's how much it gets the attention of everyone around. It's a mighty rushing wind. This is a Uh, an image that we see in other places in Scripture. When God shows up, he shows up with power. We see like in 1 Kings 19, the story of Elijah, we're told when God appears, he shows up, and a mighty wind actually tears the mountain apart, begins to break the rocks apart. This is a a symbolic uh, expression of the raw power of God, and it's showing up within and with the people of God. Now, as vivid and stirring as those images are, I also want to recognize that this this doesn't always square with our experience, right? So every day, including this morning, doesn't feel like Pentecost, right? Today just felt like probably just another Sunday morning, pretty ordinary, no mighty rushing wind, just the alarm going off a little too early, maybe at two in the morning last night, that battery that needs to be changed and the smoke alarm, that was going off. You know, uh, maybe the kids were coming back a little late. They woke you up, right? Just like ordinary Sunday morning. And then like Tuesday's probably not going to feel like Pentecost either. It's just going to be normal Tuesday. No mighty rushing winds. uh, No vivid expressions of God showing up. It just feels normal and ordinary. And and honestly, it, it doesn't square with our experience of often feeling pretty powerless, pretty weak in the face of the situations that we're faced with. So how is it that we square what's being described here as the power of God, which is given to Christians through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and our own experience, which doesn't always feel like that's true? 
Well, the first thing we should say, and just sort of get this out of the way, not like it's not important, but because it's important, we need to talk about other things too, is that there is no such thing as a Holy Spiritless Christian. Okay, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has shown up in your life. So if there was such a thing as spiritual CSI, and they did whatever they do, dust for spiritual fingerprints or whatever, your life as a Christian bears witness to the reality of the Holy Spirit. If you're listening to the Word of God this morning, and it's coming to you and being received by you as the authoritative Word of God, the Holy Spirit has shown up in your life. Jesus says it in John 14, the world does not know him. That is to say, the world does not recognize the voice of the Spirit. But if you do, it means the Holy Spirit has done an incredible work in your life to open your eyes to the reality of the gospel. And so, the Holy Spirit is not an accessory. It's a necessity. I know we're Presbyterians, and I was like, "Ah, I'm not really sure I'm into that. You're into that. Trust me, you're into this. So that's the first thing. Yes, the Holy Spirit has shown up in your life. And yes, he didn't just show up and then take off. He dwells within you. The Apostle Paul asks the question because sometimes we need to just be asked the question and answer it for ourselves. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know, Christian, not super Christian, not Christian who shows up to church every Sunday, not Christian who knows his Bible backward and forwards, not Christian who goes to Bible study every single week, Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the living God dwells within you? So that's not the question. Really, the question is, sometimes we feel it and sometimes we don't. That's just reality. That's just walking through this world. That's just being on the road with Jesus. There's another uh, statement that's made in uh, Romans chapter 8. Since we're talking about the resurrection, I thought I would just point this out as well. It's not the only place this happens, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul makes this statement about the Holy Spirit. He describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, we're talking about the resurrection. We have been the last few weeks and why the resurrection matters. Here's another reason it matters. Because the resurrection gives us a reference point for the power of the Holy Spirit who is with you and within you. We look at the resurrection of Jesus and we see there evidence that he is indeed powerful, powerful enough even to raise the dead. It reminds me of um, a guy I used to play soccer with, so I was an adult in an adult league Years ago, it was sort of a, you know, sort of like an around 30 league, but it was more like, you know, 20 to 30s, and I was around 30, so I probably shouldn't have been on this team. Everybody was faster, better, stronger, all the rest, so I let all the young guys do the work, but there was one guy on the team named Timmy. I knew he was good. Uh, I knew he was fast. Uh, I knew he was capable of doing incredible things, but I didn't really see it until like the fourth or fifth game, and um, uh, we're down by a goal or something like that. There's about three minutes left, and uh, we're tired. Okay, I'm tired. I'm on the sideline. I'm cheering everybody on. Go get them, guys. And all of a sudden, it's like Timmy just flipped the switch. Have you seen somebody do this on the basketball court, tennis court, maybe the golf course or something? Like, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, okay. And he dribbles past one guy, two guys, blows by the other three guys, buries the shot, game tied. Okay, Timmy. 
And then a minute later, he does the same thing, just blows by everybody, buries the shot. We're up by one. I'm very excited, still on the sideline, haven't been invited back into the game. We win the game by one. And you know what happens for the rest of the season, right? The rest of the season, how does the conversation go? If we're ever down, if we're ever tired, if we're ever feeling weak or powerless, like we can't back, get back in the game, we just kind of look down the bench, we're like, Timmy? Right? Like, we saw what you did before. We saw what you're capable of. Just go do that again, which he did often. And what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, and the New Testament says this, says this other places as well, is when we're feeling, feeling powerless and helpless, you know, and down by one with three minutes to go, one place we can look as a reference point to understand the power of the one who lives within us, the Holy Spirit, is by looking at the resurrection and saying, we know what the Holy Spirit is capable of doing. If he can do that, he can change me. If he can do that, he can change this person's heart. If he can do that, he can change my heart toward that person. It doesn't mean, by the way, that just because the Holy Spirit has that power that you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that your sin struggle is gonna go away automatically. Our growing in holiness involves our own effort as well, and yet there should be great encouragement for us as Christians to know, as it says in 1 John chapter 4, that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you. There is power in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is given to us for the Christian life. So there is power in his presence. There's also purpose in his presence. This, too, is something that we don't have to scratch our heads or think about very hard because Jesus prepped his disciples for this as well. He said, I will clothe you with power. This is from Acts chapter 1, just the chapter before, right before Jesus ascends into heaven. He says, I will clothe you with power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There's an intricate and necessary connection between God sending the Spirit and God sending us out. This is the pattern that we find. God shows up so that his people can go out. And it's the pattern we find here as well. One uh, New Testament scholar, Michael Green, has put it this way. The Holy Spirit doesn't make us comfortable. The Holy Spirit makes us missionaries. That's the pattern we see from the very beginning. When the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts chapter 2, it's not to make the church comfortable, it's to make them missionaries. How does he do that? Well, we see two things going on here. We see a great reversal leading to a great rehearsal. A great reversal leading to a great rehearsal. Verse 4. Uh, the, so uh, when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's, this, there's the sound of mighty rushing wind. Verse 3, divided tongues of fire appear on them and each one of them. And then verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, uh, we're not going to have a long conversation about speaking in tongues, but it's important to notice here what's being described is not some language well, it might be a language we wouldn't understand, but it's not sort of a celestial language. What's being described here is instant fluency in foreign languages. So that all of a sudden, these disciples go from speaking maybe one or two languages to speaking all kinds of different languages, which are listed for us in verses 8 through 10. Pretty cool. 
Some of you are like, I could totally use that right now, right? Because some of you are in, you know, Spanish 2. And, you know, you know, in order to get to Spanish 3, we get to do a lot of flashcards and conjugation charts. And some of you are in seminary, maybe, and you're learning Greek. And maybe you're learning Hebrew this summer. There's, like, no way to learn it. I mean, you could pray for the Holy Spirit to show up, knock yourself out, but I'm pretty sure he's going to say, do your homework is what he's going to say. Or maybe you've been to Defense Language Institute with the military, you've been you know, overseas to learn languages, or you grew up on the mission field, whatever. You know it takes a long time to learn language. It takes a lot of work to learn another language. But here it's like, boom, Holy Spirit shows up, instant fluency. Very cool, very cool. But very cool for another reason too. Because this is actually fitting into the larger story of the Bible So way back in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11, we have a story of the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, you have um, the nations coming together to build something basically for the glory of man, for the glory of the human spirit, if you will. And in stopping them from that, because it would have had disastrous consequences, but also to judge their pride and arrogance, God confuses their languages. And so the language barrier is introduced to human history. And we all know about the language barrier. If you've done any traveling or you've tried to communicate to somebody um, and you don't speak their language, you know the language barrier is no joke, right? Like it's, it's a real barrier when that person doesn't speak your language and you don't speak their language. And, and maybe you're like, ah, oh, I spoke a little, you know, I took a little French in high school. Okay, right? And then you try, you're like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. And so you resort to, you know, hand signs, and then you pull out Google Translate, and you just start typing stuff and showing each other your phones. The language barrier is a real barrier. It's a real wall between people. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing on the Holy Spirit's agenda is to tear down that wall? The first thing he does is to break down the barriers, cultural, linguistic, ethnic, racial, everything else that we understand as barriers between people. It's the first thing the Holy Spirit does is break down what feel to us, at least in our cultural moment, as unbreakable barriers. That's the first thing. It speaks to God's commitment to building a people for himself, gathering a family for himself from every nation and every tribe and every culture and every language. That he's serious about that. That image we see in Revelation of that being the destination of God's people, this multicultural, multi-ethnic, around the world, global family that he's putting together even now, God means business. He's doing it here. He's doing it now. And as Christians, as those who are part of this family, there should be something inside of us that says, this is beautiful. We should long to see these kind of walls come down to the glory of God and for the grace and goodness of people. And I would even say there's ways in which we participate in this through ministry partners in this church, but I would just challenge you even in your own life, in your own small way, to begin to expand your own heart, your own vision for what it looks like for God himself to break down these barriers. What if you and your family became very intentional, if you're not already and you might already be, 
um, very intentional about welcoming people into your home who are just different than you are. I'm not going to enumerate how they have to be different, but just different. You know, it's very easy to have people in our home who are just like us, who think like us, agree with us. You know, we can all complain about the same stuff. We can all be on the same page about everything. We have all kinds of things in common. But to have people in your home who disagree with you and are different from you and come from a different background than you do, that, that requires a different level of humility and listening and grace on your part. What would it look like if we were more intentional about welcoming people into our homes and our lives specifically because they're different than we are? Not as a project, right? Not like as an evangelistic project, but simply as an expression of God's own commitment that we see right here to break down those barriers. Now, at the same time, we should say this. That is not an end unto itself, right? So like what's being described here is not God saying, you know, what's wrong with peace, love, and understanding? Let's just all get along, brotherhood of man, all of that. That's not, what, that's not what's going on here. As, as much as I think we would all welcome in our world today people getting along better, that would be, that would be good. But short of that just happening instantaneously, notice this is happening for a purpose. It's happening so that the church can express a great rehearsal of the mighty works of God. Notice in verse 11, all these people coming from all these different ethnicities and all the prejudices and all the history between these different groups are now hearing about the mighty works of God of God. And if you keep reading, I said we're not going to keep going, but if we were to keep going and read Peter's sermon at Pentecost, what we would find is that Peter is able, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to talk about the mighty works of God which culminate in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and the sending of God the Spirit. That is to say, this great reversal of Babel is intended to open up doors so that people can understand the gospel clearly. They can hear the good news and believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And that's why, again, we're finishing the series here. We've been talking about the resurrection for six weeks. Now we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because even Peter himself in this passage recognizes that the sending of the Spirit is the climax of this great redemptive work of Jesus. Listen to the way that theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it. Having the Spirit, now he's speaking to you as a Christian. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I won't assume all of you are, but for those who are a Christian, he's speaking to you, and if you're not, he could be speaking about you if you place your faith in Christ. This is what he says. Having the Spirit is the equivalent, indeed the very mode, of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling in us so that we are united to him as he is united to the Father. That means today, that means this week, that the Lord has a purpose for your life, that you're walking into a week that is being orchestrated by the Holy Spirit for a purpose, that you might move even into places of difference to tell people about Jesus, orchestrating every conversation, orchestrating every meeting, 
relationship, opportunities, even those difficult places that you're moving into, those are places in which we're tempted to feel alone, like God is just kind of leaving us on our own, leaving us, sending us to the wolves. No, what's being described for us even here is that those lonely and difficult places, even those places are places we need to remember that because Pentecost is true, because the Spirit has come, we go nowhere by accident, and we go nowhere alone. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father, we thank you that even at this table we are reminded that you superintend all of our lives and that the greatest treasure of the gospel is you. Obedient, crucified, risen, exalted, ruling Christ, we thank you for sending the spirit that we might have communion with you every day, but especially at this table where you invite us in, into a place of greater intimacy as you meet with us and dine with us. Lord, help our hearts to fall in line with what's true, what you tell us is true in your scripture. We ask that we would do it for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.